All right, so Isaiah 1, which we just wrapped up last week, we spent about three Sundays in chapter 1, and we did that gradually, slowly, just kind of a long trudge because uh, it sets up the foundation for the whole book of Isaiah. And, and so if you've missed that, that's okay. I can just really recap that for you very simply. Um, I, Isaiah chapter 1 highlights the, our rebellion, our need for a Savior, because we're rebellious sinners. And, and yet we have a God who pursues us and, pers- and comes for us. And that's really what chapter 1 highlights, is that God is calling us out for our sin, but he's also providing us a way to be saved through him. And so we've just kind of taken that slow, slow trudge uh, through that. Now, Isaiah chapter 2, it's a, it's a pretty lengthy chapter. It's got a lot in it. We're going to fly through a lot of it uh, for the sake of time. But essentially, um, what it's going to show us is something that we already know um, intuitively, just by being human beings living in the world, we know that the world as it is, is not as it should be. Everybody knows that. Like, that's not a radical idea. Um, that doesn't matter what your political view is. It doesn't matter what you, uh, what you believe philosophically. Everyone in the world agrees because of human experience that the world is not what it should be. Now, what Isaiah 2 tackles in the midst of that is really uh, the choices ahead of us, th- that we have two ways we could go with that. We could either try to uh, manipulate our circumstances and try to control how the world around us is uh, going, which we we do all the time, right? We always try that and it always fails. It never actually works. Um, But that is one of the options ahead of us that we can just kind of try to get prideful and boastful and do our thing and try to run our own uh, lives which ultimately will lead to uh, great fear or, or pride, but generally it's going to lead to fear because we can't actually control our circumstances. There are so many things in life that are just outside of our control. We, we want to believe we can control more than we actually can. But that is an option, that we can try to get to manipulate the things around us. Or, and what Isaiah 2 is really going to encourage us towards, is that we learn to embrace what God has for us. That what God has for us is far better than any future we could perceive for ourselves. And so what we ought to do is pursue with hope and humility what God has for us because it's a beautiful future. God has a beautiful future in store for his people. And, and it's hard to see that when we're in the middle of all the mess that we live in. It's hard to keep our eyes on the the hope of the future that Jesus has secured for us by his life, death, and resurrection. It's hard. I mean, even even my little offhanded comment this morning highlights that, where complain about the rain, even though I had a great day yesterday that I could have enjoyed, I'm complaining about now, right? Because we live so much in now that we were so blinded to what, was, what came before and what's ahead. Um, and so we, we do that all the time. But what Isaiah 2 is going to draw us to is simply to embrace what God has for us with hope and humility. And those are the two ideas this morning, hope and humility as we pursue the Lord Jesus. So uh, let's take a look here. Um, 
what we're going to see in the first four verses is a vision, uh, a picture of what God does have in store for, for us as his people. It is a glorious picture of the future that we have ahead of us. Um, and, and as we come alive to that future, as we come alive even here and now to that promise, what's going to happen is we're going to dethrone our idols, all of our false hopes and securities, and we're going to see the Lord Jesus exalted among us and in us. And so that's the hope. But chapter, uh, chapter 2, 1 through 4 gives us the picture. And then we're going to spend a bulk of our time on that. And, and then we're going to go uh, into the next section of the chapter, which uh, kind of shows us how to get there and, and what it's going to look like in the end. So uh, he, here we go. It, sa- it says this, the word of the Lord, or the word that Isaiah, rather, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Verse two, it shall come to pass in the latter days. So this is not, this, is, this was future for Isaiah and it's still future for us. This, is not, this has not yet come to pass entirely, um, although we will see that there are glimpses of it even now because of Jesus. But here's what it says. In, in the latter days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So, so in this, this short paragraph or two, uh, what Isaiah is showing us is what is ultimately to come uh, upon Christ's return when he establishes his kingdom forever on the earth. And it is a glorious picture uh, of our future as his people. Look, just look at some of the things that are addressed in here. Um, first, we see that Jesus, um, really God himself, uh, as we, we know him uh, through Jesus, will be glorified above everything else. Everything else, like we don't glory in God as we should because we're sinners. But there will come a day when God's glory will just surpass everything else uh, in our hearts and minds. And that's really what verse 2 is talking about when it says that the mountain of the house of the Lord, this is all imagery, right? That will be established as the highest of the mountains and will be lifted up above the hills. In, in other words, what he's using here is uh, symbolism of God's house. It's, it's really talking about his glory. It's talking about who he is and, and what he, uh, his, uh, his authority and his power. It's going to be lifted up above the, all the other mountains, all the other impressive things are going to pale in comparison to him. Uh, imagine what the world would be like if we actually just lived for the glory of Jesus all the time. It would be an amazing thing. And that will be one day the reality, though it's not right now in its fullness. 
Then at the end of verse 2, it says, all the nations will flow to it. All the nations will flow to the glory of God. And, and this is just showing us this, that, that God's salvation is not just for the people of Israel, as Isaiah is talking here to the people of Israel. It's for all the nations. It's for everyone to come and flow to the Lord. And we're seeing that happen in our world. Thirdly, we see that his ways will be lived out perfectly. That God's perfect ways will be lived out perfectly. We, we see that in verse 3. That the house of uh, God of Jacob will, that he will teach us his ways, that we will walk in his paths. Um, from out of Zion will go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So we will walk in his ways, perfectly doing what God wants us to do. We don't do that perfectly now, but one day we will as we're fully glorified in Christ. And then the last thing that it points out is that peace and security will reign on the earth. We see that in, in verse four, that all of these nations that are typically at war with each other, right? We're, we've, we've never seen our world fully at peace. Um, there's always something going on. It might not be happening with us uh, specifically, but somewhere some conflict is happening. And honestly, for the last like 15 years, we've been embroiled in, in conflict and, and for much longer than that. Um, so we know the, the weight of war. We know the hardship there. And yet there will come a day when there will not be any more uh, warfare. There will not be any more conflict. Peace and security will reign on the earth when Jesus rules and reigns on the throne. What a glorious picture. Uh, we can't, it's almost so good we can't really fully uh, appreciate it or imagine it. But, it's, but it is there. It's the promise that we have. This is the glorious vision that God is giving us, which should give us hope, right? This is, that's, that's the whole thing, that this is, Isaiah is giving hope to us. The, the, the way things are now are not the way they will always be. That, that the world we live in now will not always be this way. Now, we may live to see the day when all of this transitions. We may live to see the day that Jesus comes back for us. We may not, we don't know when his return will be. Uh, and we, it's not for us to know. Jesus tells his disciples that the times are not for us to know. That, that is all left up to uh, the Father. But there will come a day when all of this will be experienced by us and by all who love Jesus. Now, the question is, though, uh, that we've got we to answer this question, is how in the world do we enter into this kind of hope? What is, the, what is the pathway to this hope that he gives to us? And I think the answer is in verse 5. Verse 5, I believe, is the hinge for this whole passage. It's, it's the connecting point for everything that we've seen and everything that we're going to see through the remainder of the chapter. So verse 5 says this. It's a very short verse, and it's just glorious. Here's what it says. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So, so we have this hope of this future promise that in the latter days, these things are going to be true. God is going to be glorified above everything. The nations are going to come to him. Everyone's going to live this perfect life because he's secured that for us through his life, death, and resurrection. And that peace and security will reign. But how do we get into that? We walk in the light of the Lord. That's, that's how all of this happens. By walking in the light. 
So we need to talk about what that means. What does it mean to walk in the light of the Lord? And I think what clarifies this is the contrast that we're going to see from verse 6 through the end of the chapter, um, which just begins to paint this really almost ugly picture for us. Like we've just seen this, paint, this beautiful picture of God's future, and then we're going to see this horrible, hideous picture of what we actually are right now. And, and the, the, the reason I say chapter or verse five is the hinge is because that verse serves as the way to get from the ugliness we're about to see to the glory that we just saw. And, and so look at what happens in verse six through 22. We'll read it. We'll get through it. I'm going to read it all kind of together. So bear with me, follow along if you need to. Um, there's a lot here, um, but it's going to just paint this picture that is, much more in line with what we actually experience right now. Like what we've just read doesn't align with our experience very much, but this will. Verse six says, For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord. And from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty, that means pride, the haughty look, looks of man shall be brought low. The lofty pride of men shall be humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled. The lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day." And the idols shall utterly pass away and the people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground and before, from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold that they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter to the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the hill from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostril is breath of, for, of what account is he. All right, so there was a lot there. And we're not going to talk about every single line here, but we're, what we're seeing is this, that there is two, one of two responses to what God has for us. It's either humility and, and walking in the light, or it's the ugliness of our pride that will one day be... Uh, just dealt with by the Lord. That's what's, that's what's being unpacked here is this whole thing that 
all of us, by trying to control our own future, by trying to manipulate our circumstances, by trying to make ourselves what we think we should be, rather than leaning into him, we are actually just digging ourselves deeper and deeper holes. And it's, and it's ugly, and it's not a, a great, beautiful picture. It is, uh, it's, you know, we're trying to count on, it says, fortune tellers and uh, idols that we make with our own hands and, and all these things. And, and what it, the, the word is telling us is that the people who depend on their own pride and their own hands to, to get what they think they need will ultimately be humbled, will ultimately be uh, basically just... Um, you know, judged by, by God. That's, that's the reality of it. And so what we're seeing here is where they are and what is to come if they don't walk in the light, right? So they're, they're, the call is walk in the light of the Lord or this is what's going to be, be done. It's, you're going to continue to dig yourself uh, into a hole you're, and you're going to be humiliated in the end because your pride will make you brought low. And so that's, that's the whole thing here, is that this walking in the light means that we are willing to own up to all of the ugliness that's in us so that we can be healed. That's what, the, that's what verse 5 is trying to get us to see, that walk in the light of the Lord means that we own up, that we acknowledge, and we walk in humility despite all of the ugliness that's in us, all of the sin and rebellion that's in us, that we acknowledge it, that we bring it before him, that we expose it to the light of the gospel. That's what we're called to do here. That's what this is all about. It's not a beautiful picture unless we walk outside of this into the light of the Lord. What, it, what it's showing us is that we can, we can either dig down our feet and try to stand on our own or we can acknowledge all of the things that we fail to do, bring it out and walk in the light. That's, that's the choice before us. And, and I think that one of the, the passages in the New Testament that really begins to uh, bring this out uh, and, and shows us really what is meant here is 1 John chapter 1, 5 through 10. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. We're going to spend a little time in 1 John because this theme of walking in the light is uh, just very uh, prevalent here in these verses in 1 John 1. 1 John 1, 5 through 10, and if you've been around the church a while, uh, this church a while, you've heard us probably um, teach on this at some point or another. It's an important passage to us, and I hope to just show you why that is. But um, we, we, like I said, we have two choices, right? We can either be walking in pride or we can walk in humility. And, and that's what it means to walk in the light. It means to walk humbly before the Lord. So look at what it says. In 1 John 1, 5, it says, This is the message that we have heard from him, and we proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So the first thing that John establishes for us is this, that God's very character and nature is that of light. It, there's nothing in God that has to be hidden. 
There's nothing in him that's ugly or wrong. There's, there's nothing in him that is sinful or broken. He is, he, when it says that he is light, it means that he is just perfectly illuminated as he is without any shame. There's nothing there to be ashamed of because he's perfect in all of his ways. There is nothing dark in him at all. Nothing at all. And so he, he starts there, right? That's in some way uh, a, a piece of the, the gospel message that Jesus is perfect. That's where the gospel starts. It starts with, really, it starts with we're not perfect and Jesus is. And Jesus stands in our place as the perfect God um, who could live the human life that none of us could live. It starts there. If you don't have a perfect Savior, you don't have a Savior at all. So here God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So this verse is simply saying this, that if we are claiming to have a relationship with God through Jesus, but we are actually living uh, outside of his light, then we're not telling the truth. We, We can't say we have fellowship with God and at the same time live in the dark because God is light, right? So where he is and where his people are, are in the light. If we're in the darkness, we're not with him because that's not where he is, right? And so we, we have to, we're just being told this. This is a very important thing that we're being told, that if we claim that we have this relationship with God while we walk in darkness. So let's talk about what that means. What does it mean to walk in darkness? Well, if Walking in the light is walking humbly and acknowledging our failures, then walking in darkness is the opposite of that, right? It's living in pride. It's living in uh, uh, this boastfulness that I, I don't have a problem. I don't, I don't need anything. I don't need anything from God. I'm good. I'm fine. I'm not sinful. I'm, I'm good in this. That's what John is saying. If we are living like that while claiming to not be living like that, we don't practice the truth. We're actually called liars. Now, verse 7. So he says, if we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie, do not practice the truth. Verse 7 says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This is one of the most important things in all of the New Testament, this verse. This is so important. If, if we walk in the light, walk humbly and quickly acknowledge our sin, there is something glorious that happens. Two things, actually. The first that's mentioned is that we have fellowship with one another. And the second is that we have the blood of Jesus, his son, that cleanses us from all of our sin. So two things happen when we walk in the light. Number one, our relationships to each other can become restored. We can be actually in fellowship, right fellowship with one another as we walk in the light and as we walk in the light, we get the, the, the effectual 
work of Jesus' sacrifice applied to us. If we don't walk in the light, we will, neither, we will not experience his forgiveness and we will not experience true fellowship. And I think we, we get this intuitively because when, when we know we're hiding our sin, when, when we all do this from on one degree or another. We all do. Well, we have sin and we're ashamed of it. So instead of coming out and admitting it, we just dig in our heels and pretend like it's not happening. But what happens when, when we're living a double life or we're living a, a life that is filled with unrepentant sin, it inevitably begins to erode the relationships that we have with the people around us. It just does. Because, it's, because the, the, you, know, you know how this goes, right? When you tell a lie and you've got to keep telling lies to keep that lie and it just kind of continues to spiral. We've all, we've all done that. And eventually, all the, that, that stack of cards, that house of cards that you've built with all these lies, just one thing gets pulled out and it all comes crumbling down. Um, most of us have probably seen that, experienced that, or even have tried to build that house of cards. But what inevitably happens as we continue to lie and posture and pretend that we're fine and we don't need to, to confess our sin, all, all we're doing is we're building this house of cards that is inevitably going to disrupt the relationships we have. It's, it's not going to have, we can't have true transparent r- friendships as long as we are hiding in our sinfulness. We just can't. And so what happens when we walk in the light is the relationships we have become healed. They become restored. Not overnight, not immediately, right? There's going to be consequences to, to our sin. And yet, the, it, it's the bridge by which healing can begin to happen. We will never see healing in our relationships until there is genuine walking in the light. And, but even beyond the, the friendship level or beyond the relational level with other people, we, we have the even more glorious promise that by walking in the light as he is in the light um, makes the blood of Jesus effective to save us and cleanse us from all of our sin. So we have a restored relationship to God, which is vastly more important in, eternal, in the eternal sense. Um, vastly more important that we are right with God because by being right with God, we can begin to grow in being right with each other. Everything flows from that. But here's what we're seeing. We're seeing that the, the, the work of Jesus Christ is applied to those who walk in the light, who confess their sin, who acknowledge their need, who, who don't try to create their own uh, you know, life the way that they want it, but embrace the hope that Jesus has for them. This is all what Isaiah is talking about in chapter two. He's talking about the same thing that John's talking about. He's doing it in a different way, in a different context, but it's the same point, that if we walk in the light of the Lord, we're going to see our pride broken down and humility begin to grow, and we're going to see restored relationship with God and one another. So here we go from there. Um, Verse 6 reminds us that we can't say we have fellowship with God while walking in darkness. And if we do, we're liars. 
Then it gives us the wonderful promise of what happens when we walk in the light. But then verse 8, look at what happens next. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So here's another, I love this. Actually, I just, I just really appreciated this for the first time uh, this week as I've been working through it. I never really noticed what John was doing before. Uh, I mean, I, I, I knew these verses. I've memorized these verses. I, I know what he says, but I guess it just never really clicked in my mind what he's doing. He's going back and forth. He's going between, uh, here's, here's what happens when you continue to dig in your heels and be proud. Here's what happens when you embrace what God has for you. Here's what happens when you dig in your heels and are proud. Here's what happens when you embrace what God has for you. It's like this, it's this, this stacking thing. It's amazing. So the second thing he does is he goes back to this lying issue. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So this, the, I think John really gets human nature. He is a human, and, but the, the Spirit of God is illuminating his heart and inspiring the words he's saying here. But I think what, what this is showing is just the nature of humanity, that we don't really want to walk in the light. We really don't, not in our sinfulness. We want to continue to deny. We want to continue to, to refuse to admit the reality. And so we may lie to the people around us about our relationship with God. In verse 8, we may lie to ourselves. We deceive ourselves if we say we have no sin. We deceive ourselves. We're, we're good at lying to others and we're even good at lying to ourselves. We're really good at lying to ourselves. So good at it. And that's why John brings this out. And he says, look, you are a sinner and you need the blood of Jesus to cleanse you from your sin. But if you're gonna continue to dig in your heels and be proud and pretend like you don't, then you are just lying to yourself. You're lying to everyone around you and you're lying to yourself. And then again, we see the hope of the gospel. Look at verse nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's the hope, right? Walking in the light restores our relationships to others. It restores our relationship to God. Walking in the light in verse 9 means that we acknowledge our sin and we embrace and accept his faithful forgiveness of our sins. That he, God is eager to forgive, but he only forgives those who acknowledge that they need forgiveness. That makes sense, right? I mean, it makes sense that that's how this should work, that, that, God, is, that God wants us all to turn from our sin, but it's those that actually do confess our sin that experience the healing of God, this cleansing and forgiving power that God has and that he's faithful to have. We, we see we can continue to lie to others, we can continue to lie to ourselves, but if, we, if in contrast we walk in the light as he's in the light, we'll have fellowship, we'll have forgiveness, we'll be cleansed, we'll, we have all that he offers us there. And then verse 10 says this, he goes back to the, the warning, right? He's kind of flipping between warning and promise. 
And he ends the paragraph on a warning. He says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So he's going from lying to others to lying to ourselves to then claiming that God himself is a liar. It's, It's getting worse and worse as we go, right? It's easy to deceive others. It's a little harder to deceive ourselves, but we can do it. We do it all the time. But then to have the brashness, the, the, the absolute disgusting brashness of accusing him of being a liar. That's the epitome of pride, isn't it? Isn't it the epitome, the highest mountain of pride to say, God, you're lying. I'm not a sinner and I don't need you. That is the absolute epicenter of what it means to be proud. And so again, John is reminding us of this fact that we need to walk in humble repentance of our sin. And and yes, it's hard to do that. Yes, it's painful to admit what we've done. Yes, we we don't want to lose our, our good standing among our friends and peers and and whoever else. We don't want people to think that we're sinners. But I've got some good news for you. We already know you're a sinner. So why pretend that you're not? <laughs> like, we know. I, you know I'm a sinner. So, why, so, so when, I, when I meet with uh, the elders and we have these meetings, and uh, I, I don't pretend that I'm not a sinner. They, these guys know that, that I'm a sinner. Why, why do I need to pretend? And they know that I know that they're sinners. So why do we need to pretend? It goes all the way across the board. All of us have to come to the reality that we are sinners, and yet Jesus offers us forgiveness and hope as we walk in the light. So why pretend? It's so silly that we would say, well, I don't want people to know that I'm a sinner. We already do. And we love you anyways. (laughs) Because Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you as a sinner, but he doesn't want to keep you as a sinner. He doesn't want you to die in your sin. He wants to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And I, I think as, as we kind of work through this together, um, one of the things that I've been trying to nail down in our church for the last few years has been this, this idea of gospel culture. And when we talk about gospel culture a lot, and what, what I mean by that is that what we see in Jesus, we should begin to see gradually grow in us. That gospel doctrine, what we believe he's done for us, according to scripture, right? What the scriptures say he does for us should lead us to living that out. And that's what Paul talks about quite a bit in his letters. He, he gives us some good examples. He says, um, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. So there's a command in that to, to forgive one another. But we don't just forgive one another willy-nilly. We forgive one another because God forgave us in Christ. So the gospel doctrine is God forgave you. The gospel culture is so we forgive each other. That, so we begin to see these things grow in our church as we actually live it out in how Christ uh, displayed it. 
And I think that what, we, what we're seeing here in 1 John 1 is the, the beginning of gospel culture. It's the only way we'll ever see it happen is if we are actually walking in the light. Walking in the light as he is in the light. There's the gospel doctrine that he's in the light. He's true. He's right. He's perfect. He's holy. And so because that's true and because Jesus has lived for us and died for us and rose again for us, we have the spirit-empowered ability to walk in the light because he's in the light. That's the entry point into gospel culture. It is, it is being open and transparent about our need so that we can actually experience true healing from him. We will never see gospel culture flourish in our church if we are not walking in the light. As long as we continue to hide in the dark and, and show up and put on a good face for Sunday morning and go about the rest of our week in complete hypocrisy, we're never going to see the culture that God wants to create in the church. We're never going to see it. But if we do, if we do walk in the light, as he's in the light, we'll have the fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, will cleanse us from all of our sin. The other beautiful thing that we can highlight here, just as we conclude this, is that the vision we're given in Isaiah 2, 1 through 4, of the future day that we'll all experience in Christ is, is actually growing and happening here and now. See, I'm, I'm convinced, and I know there's different theological points of view on, on the, you know, the kingdom of God and, the, and, and how all that looks and what, what that's like. And, and some, some would say that the kingdom of God is purely a future th- realization that God, when Jesus is physically on the earth, that's the kingdom. I don't think I see that in the scriptures. And this is, again, people can disagree with me on this. But I do think that while the the kingdom of God is not fully yet realized, it's not fully yet experienced, it is beginning to be experienced because Jesus actually is still ruling and reigning. He's ruling and reigning in heaven right now and he's ruling and reigning through the people that he saves. And when you look through the list of things that Isaiah two, one through four, gives us of of God's glorious future, we actually begin to see glimpses of it, not fullness of it, but glimpses of it in the church. Look, Look at the first one, that Jesus will be glorified above all things. That the highest mountains will, will, uh, that, that the house of the Lord will be above all the highest mountains. Isn't that why we're here, like today, to glorify Jesus above everything else? as we start start our week? Isn't that why we sing songs that magnify his glory and not sing songs about ourselves? Like we're not here to give you a pep talk about how great you are. We're here to talk about how great Jesus is. That's the whole thing, right? That's the whole point of why we're here. And, And so the church begins to live that out, not perfectly as we will one day, but we do begin to live it out. The second thing we see in that passage is that the nations are flowing to him. Guess what? If you're not Jewish, you are a fulfillment of this happening. <laughs> we are the nations. We, we are. Like, we all come from all kinds of different backgrounds and places. But 
The fact of the matter is, is that if you are not a, a, a Jewish person in that context here, we are actually the result of this. And the church is made up of the nations. What a glorious thing we're seeing happen. And it's always continuing. It's growing and growing. I know we have, in the States at least, there's a lot of cynicism about the the church and a lot of churches are closing and a lot of churches are declining and the western world is sort of losing some steam it seems it seems but when you look beyond the nation of uh, of america and beyond the western world you see incredible expansion of the gospel happening in south america in africa and in asia the the church is continuing to grow It's continuing to expand all the time and the nations are flowing to Jesus. We see that in his kingdom, his perfect ways will be lived perfectly. Now, in the church, we're never going to see that until that day comes when he returns. But we should be seeing that grow. We should be seeing people mature. We should be seeing people actually want to live for him, and again, in a small way, we get a taste of that as we walk in the light, as he's in the light. And then the last thing that we see in that, those verses is that the peace and security that will reign on the earth. Again, we won't see that in its universal uh, position, but we will see it in the church. As relationships are restored, we will see peace in our church. Not, not perfectly, because Christians are sinners too, right? So we're going to have conflicts. We're going to have arguments. We're going to have disagreements. We see churches separate over really dumb things. And by God's grace, we won't see that here, but we might. The, but the fact of the matter is that as we walk in the light, as he's in the light, what should be growing in that is the peace between one another that he wants us to live in. Again, the church is not a perfect picture of this, but it is an increasingly growing picture of this as Jesus matures us and grows us in him. And so the hope of the gospel, the hope of the gospel is that, that we can actually walk fully and freely as who we are, acknowledging our sinfulness, coming to him for forgiveness, and being reminded again and again that he actually does want to forgive us. That's one of the things that we get to celebrate as we come to the table every Sunday. The reason we at our church have chosen to do communion weekly is because we think it's a great thing to do every week to reset our week with the reminder that Jesus Christ is faithful and just to forgive us our sin as we walk in the light. And so this gives you an opportunity to bring to him the things in your heart that are, that are not what they should be. He knows them all already. There's nothing you can tell him that will surprise him. So just tell him. Acknowledge it. Walk in humility. And, and then go to the table as that tangible reminder that Jesus Christ is faithful and just to forgive you as you come to him. What a great reminder. What, a th- what, what hope we have. What grace there is in Jesus. And that's what we're going to celebrate uh, the, for the remaining time we have together. So let me pray for us. I'll have the worship team come up and we'll sing and take communion and give of our offerings in response to all of this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that by Jesus' blood,
we are restored, we are made right, but we also know that we need you to nudge us and prod us and push us and even shove us in the right direction. Would you break down our pride? Would you help us walk in humility? Would you give us the, the desire that only you can do to actually want to walk in the light? Would you do that for us today? Would you begin that work now? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.